It was a joy to be able to sing together with you all, church. I was in the fellowship hall with my family for, the, well, I guess, the first four or five songs. And uh, it's good to know that they sing loud and they sing out up there as well, too. We're still singing together, even though we are separated by a wall. But it is good to be able to lift our voices together in worship of this great and glorious God. I want to make one quick announcement as, as well before we get to the sermon this morning on not this Monday, so not tomorrow, but the following Monday, the 22nd, we're going to decorate the church for the season. And so if you have time at 5 p.m. to come here and to rearrange some things, put up the trees, at, we would uh, love it if you could do that. We'll have some pizza. There'll be some food for everybody as well, too. So please let my wife know. We can let myself know or any of the elders as well know uh, as for that as well. And we'll be happy to make sure that there's something for you to do when you get here uh, Monday, the 22nd at 5 p.m. So we're going to be in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. We are close to finishing this chapter, perhaps the most well-known chapter in this letter. Certainly the first half of it is. And so let's read our passage, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. So we're going to begin the reading of God's Word at verse 8 in chapter 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray and ask for his help as we study it. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we praise you for the way in which you have preserved it, how you made it and created itself, how you inspired it, and then gave it to holy men and holy apostles to record for us. And we ask, Lord God, that you would give to us understanding, that you would conform us to what your word says, that you would give us faith and, and teach us with the spirit that you have given to us, the truths of your word, so that we may live lives that honor and glorify you. Lord, we ask God that you would help us to listen well and you would help me to not teach my opinions or my ideas, Lord, but only that which is from you, for you are worthy of all exaltation. Let our boast be Christ this morning and Christ alone, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so over the last six months, or not, excuse me, six months, seems like that, the last six sermons, we have been dealing with this doctrine of love from the Apostle Paul. He has been elaborating on what love truly is, and its characteristics, its mannerisms, if we can say that about love. In other words, how love acts. But we need to remember the context of the Apostle's point here. We don't want to miss the, the forest for the specific trees, as it were. And we've been looking at lovely, at beautiful and powerful trees, especially, uh, specifically lately, this idea of love. The doctrine of love has been in view, but the apostle isn't here simply looking to give us a doctrine of love. That's not the point of what has been going on here. He's not wanting to simply teach the, the church what Christian love, what a godly love looks like. What Paul is doing here, if you remember, is contrasting love with the gifts. 
with those sign gifts, those spiritual gifts that he gave to the church. Uh, the, these gifts that are meant to build up the church in this age. The forest here is a section on the gifts and the proper use of them. And he is demonstrating now that the gifts are also to be used in love. And this, of course, just, this was just not the Corinthian style, if you will. The Corinthians loved the gifts that were visible. They loved the gifts that put them on display. Remember, it's been a while since I've mentioned this, but they are what Martin Luther would call like a theologian of glory. They wanted all the pizzazz and the glitz of, and the prestige that is better associated with the age to come, and they wanted it now. And ironically, these gifts that they are highlighting, that they are emphasizing, that they are elevating above love even, they aren't even for that age. They're for this age now. He's going to make that point in our text for today. But his main point, his main argument, is that this view of, or this elevation of the sign gifts, it's not loving. It's causing the church, as they are abusing these things, to not be loving towards one another. You're not, or they're not building up the church in love. You're actually neglecting love even. And so now here comes this corrective. Here comes this focus, this reorientating look on love. And of course, their favorite gift in the Corinthian church was what? It was tongues. It was this gift of speaking in a, in a certain way. Tongues seem to be their favorite. Paul seems to value prophecy himself. He's going to deal with tongues and prophecy in, in more detail. We dealt with it a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but he's going to focus even more on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But tongues was this gift that just basically... They could use it and just say, hey, look at, look at me now. Look at how spiritual I am. I speak with the tongues of angels. I have this language of heaven. I am super spiritual. I am extra, extraordinary, by the way. The same mindset is still prevalent in some churches that teach that these gifts are still active today as well. In those congregations that elevate these gifts and see these gifts still being used and practiced, sometimes it might even happen not on purpose, it just happens naturally because of the way that these things are abused. But what ends up happening is in these churches where they promote the tongues and, and prophecies, new prophetic words, what ends up hap happening is that you often have these two classes of Christians that are developed. Not biblical classes, mind you. The Word of God doesn't give us that. There are simply just saints who are covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's, that's all of us. But in a church where these kind of gifts could be abused and misappropriated, there, there becomes this two-tier structure of believers within those congregations. Uh, congregations that err, like the Corinthian church do here, end up having classes of Christians, those who practice these spiritual gifts and those who wish they could. And that leads to all kinds of problems. I think you would maybe be able to understand and see how that could play out. And Paul actually puts the gifts in their proper perspective here. Beginning back at chapter 12, and of course, the whole purpose in 1 Corinthians 12 is not to give us a, like a list of all the spiritual gifts so that we can look at, them and look at them and then take an inventory of what gifts we think we have, what gifts we want. Sometimes we do that, but that's not the Apostle Paul's intent there. That's not his point. Paul's point here that began in 1 Corinthians 12 is that there is one Spirit that gives the diversity of the gifts, and there is one God who is working through a variety of ministries that have been given, and there is one God who is bringing about the effects and the results of the gifts in the ministries that he gives through the gifting that he has given to specific people. It's, it's not about the individuals who have the gifts. It's about the whole body being built together up in love. 
And there is a unity of the Spirit that exists in the body of Christ. And the spiritual gifts are meant to strengthen that bond. They're meant to mature the fellowship. And the proper use of the gifts and embracing the gifts, the improper use of them, is actually something that will undermine or if, if you do it rightly, it will undermine pride in the congregation. When you do it wrong, then pride swells up in the congregation. And you have people that are fighting at each other because they're, they, they're not using the gifts to bring edification to one another. They're using it to bring glory and attention to themselves. It, it, the gifts properly used should bring a unity among the family of God, even in light of the more visible gifts. I mean, there are just certain gifts that kind of lend themselves to pride, of course, uh, because of our flesh. Uh, they shouldn't do that, but we do struggle with the flesh. But nobody says, for example, like, I have the gift of helps. It's awesome. Look at, look at me. Look at me. I'm, a, I'm such a helper. Nobody, nobody actually does that. It doesn't lend itself to that, to boasting in the flesh. But tongues, especially with sin unchecked, it could be ostentatious. It could easily become an attention-seeking thing. And if you see some of these clips online where it is fantastical and people are rolling on the ground and, and speaking this ex, ex, ecstatic language, I mean, it's definitely attention drawing, I think. And so Paul, as he transitions from his thoughts in chapter 12 to what he says in chapter 14, he takes time to explain the nature of the gifts and how they are used in love and the priority of love overall in the body, in the family of God, and the fellowship of the saints. And he's giving the modus operandi of, of the gifts, that the gifts should be empowered and they should be motivated by love, and this is what love looks like. And so we get now to his final paragraph here in chapter 13, and what the apostle does do is he contrasts the gifts and the transient or temporary nature of them with the lasting nature or the permanent nature of love. In other words, love is the greatest. It's love that abides and endures. It's love that never fails, that never ends. And it's really a beautiful way in which the apostle does this. Anthony Thistleton, in his commentary, notes that there is a, a chiastic structure to the passage. The final paragraph of 1 Corinthians 13 is extraordinary, not only for its breathtaking hope that it offers and what it tells us, but also even in the literary way that he writes it. Uh, the entirety of 1 Corinthians 13 is beautiful, of course. That's why it's such a popular chapter. But this chapter ends on a high note, as it were. So this uh, chiasm, this chiastic structure, it is, it's, there's an example of it on the outline that I made for you all so you can see it there. But what it does is it has the first elements corresponding with the last elements. And it kind of makes like an arrow if you see it there on your outline. The middle elements correspond with each other. And so, you, again, you can see that on the outline. Verse 13 will be addressed next week. We're not going to deal with that this morning. But this concluding principle now, that the natural outcome, as it were, of 1 Corinthians 13, 7, is what he now says beginning at verse 8. It turns out that there's a lot of ways to translate this little simple phrase where we have in our ESV, love never ends. Uh, it could be love never fails. It could be love never collapses, love never disintegrates even. Prophecies, what do they do? They're done away with. Tongues, they cease. Knowledge, and we'll talk about these in detail in just a moment, but knowledge passes away as well. Love, though, love never ends. 
In fact, he's going to say something very, very similar at the end when he says in verse 13, faith, hope, and love abide these three. The greatest of these is love. So love abiding, very similar to love and does not end. So the phrase love never ends captures the Spirit's emphasis and sentiments really quite nicely, I think. And when you think about it, there really is something just wonderfully powerful about the statement if you look at it even just all by itself, all at it, all its lonesome. It almost seems foreign. Love never ends. It seems foreign almost because of the sin-impacted world that we live in where so many things end. Some people may even be inclined to think that love ends. I mean, there is a long line of divorces in our country after all, even sadly among the professing church. We live in a, in a hookup culture. We've talked about some of these things before. Love has come to be defined by the culture in a way that is contrary to the word of God. No need to go over all of those things again. But that isn't actually an indictment on love. It just shows you how people often misunderstand what love actually is. People mistake love for something else, and people have been doing this for a very, very long time. George Matheson, the Scottish minister, he was a, a popular hymn writer. He died in 1906, and his most famous hymn, most likely, is entitled, O Love That Will Never Let Me Go. Now, George was an intriguing man. He didn't have an easy life, and when he was in seminary, he actually started to go blind. He was only 19 years old, and he had some sort of degenerative eye disease that they weren't able to correct. It was going to happen. It was a sure thing. He was going to be blind. And so at the time, he's engaged to a young lady, and he tells her this news, and she ends up breaking off their engagement because she does not want to be married to a blind man. Uh, she left him. So much for love on behalf of this woman, right? This woman that he was engaged to. Well, he ends up writing this hymn, O Love That Will Never Let Me Go, some years later when his little sister who was caring for him ends up getting married herself and she's going to go on about her own life. And he was reflecting on life and how his, his sister now was married and how he was in some ways, maybe we could say alone. And he's alone at his house thinking about this. And he says in this testimony of, of where he developed this song from. He says that something like an incredible sadness passed between him and the Lord. And he was in prayer, and he was thinking about the love of God. And this hymn came to him, he says, almost like it was dictated in a matter of about 15 minutes. Oh, love that will not let me go. And I'm not going to you know, sing it for you this morning or whatever, but you can look it up. You can look it up later on. But isn't that the kind of love that the Apostle Paul is talking about here? A love that endures. A love that will not let you go. If love does not end, or should we say since love does not end, since that is what the Word of God says, then we should know that love does not let anyone go. Perhaps Brother George was even thinking of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, subconsciously in prayer when the song came to him, as it were. And so Paul's last comment on love here is perhaps the strongest and the most important statement he's made about love in this chapter so far. Uh, when you think about this, love never fails. Love endures. In fact, you could say love tenaciously acts for the good of others. We, we, we would think then also that a, a right love, a true, a good love, is a love that is tough in the sense that it's durable. It doesn't just fall apart. Real love that comes from God the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is a love that doesn't break down or fall apart under pressure. It doesn't collapse. It doesn't disintegrate. 
Spirit-empowered love is durable, it lasts forever. It really is a wonderful thing. And we've been looking at how this wonderful and necessary thing exists in its specifics over the last six sermons. And here's the point in it all. Love is this way, enduring, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, uh, what are some of the other things that we have, that we have read here as well, that it is patient, it's kind, it does not envy and boast. Love is all of these things in direct contrast, by the way, to the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts by nature are temporary. They aren't equal to love. And so here's what the Corinthians had done. The Corinthians basically reversed the order of things by prioritizing the gifts over love. They had it backwards. They turned everything upside down. And so now what the apostle is going to do is he's going to pick three gifts, the three that the Corinthian church thought were the greatest, and he's going to demonstrate that they aren't actually as great as love. And the reason being, they aren't like love. They will actually end. And so the first thing he says, and this would be more of a literal translation, really, he says, but where there are prophecies, they shall be done away with. They will pass away, as it's rendered in the ESV. Prophecy is amazing, of course. Prophecy plays an important part in God's plan through redemptive history. Prophecy carried along God's people with gospel promises. Prophecy is still important to us today. Pastors and Christians in general must speak with a prophetic voice into the culture, compelling people to look to Christ, telling them that Christ will come again, and when he does come, he will bring his recompense with him. But prophecy won't last forever. It's going to end. The idea of spirit-empowered words, spirit-empowered exhortation, a supernatural insight, whatever the exact nature of prophecy might be, or, or what it was, it's going to be brought to an end. In fact, the word that Paul uses for pass away, it carries with it this idea of something just being done away with, being no longer needed. It, let's just assume for a moment that what the Apostle Paul is speaking about here when he talks about prophecy is just simply nothing more than preaching, for example. I think there's more to it than that, but let's just assume that at the bare minimum of what he means is, is preaching. Certainly prophecy comes through preaching. Uh, Pastor Nick preached somewhat recently about that, that preachers need to have a prophetic voice or prophetic tone to their preaching. There's more to it than that, but it's not less than that. And so what this means that there is coming a day, friends, when this work will be done. I will gloriously be out of a job in this regard. So will Nick, so will Sean, so will Ross, so will any of your favorite preachers that you might listen to as well. We won't need to preach anymore. The church won't need preachers in the age to come. It'll be done away with. What we do now is temporary. It's a temporary measure given to the church for this age, for the edification of the church, for the, in other words, the building up of the church, and it's a means also of, a, of proclamation to the lost, to call them to repentance and faith in Christ. And there's certainly an element of teaching that coincides with preaching. And I think we could say that teaching will exist and it will continue on. It will still be learning about the glories and the wonders of God throughout all eternity. I don't think that we can exhaust that even. Even when we are unencumbered by sin, I don't think that we can exhaust what will be learned of God as we enter into this age to come and for all of eternity. But preaching carries with it a prophetic element with exhortations 
and gospel comforts in light of sin and warnings to repent. It comes with correctives and the purpose of producing sanctification in us and those things we won't need in glory when the perfect comes and more on that in a moment. Then he says, tongues shall cease and we're going to have lots of time to talk about tongues in chapter 14. But of course, uh, this is the one that hit the Corinthian church a little harder, I, I would think at least, because of what did some of them think they were doing? You might remember this. This was... I don't know, maybe eight weeks ago when Pastor Nick dealt with this text, uh, because we talked about what they thought they might have been doing in light of what 1 Corinthians 13.1 says. Uh, Pastor Nick mentioned the possible Corinthian perspective that they thought that the tongues could have been an angelic language, an, an angelic language, a heavenly language, not a human language, but a language that was unique to angels. Because remember, of course, who some of these uh, people in court in the Corinthian congregation thought they were, they were super spiritualized. They were caught up in this theology of glory, and some of them thought that they already were a part of this age to come, as it were. Their feet didn't even touch the ground, you know. They were so much a part of heaven already. And they were so much a part of the age to come. They were so super spiritualized, so advanced beyond other Christians, that this gift of tongues proved it. And now Paul comes along like a glass of cold water to the face, and he says, tongues will cease. Now think about this, okay? Even, even today, there are some people that claim that speaking in tongues is a heavenly or angelic language. Uh, Pentecostals will, will tend to, to think this way. But what would that mean if tongues cease, if they ended? Are we all then mute when we go to heaven? Uh, of course not, Right? Of course we're not mute when we go to heaven. There's going to be singing around the throne of God. We are already, uh, have already commented on the fact that there's going to be teaching and growing in, in our knowledge of the Lord. And so there's going to be a language, of course, that's going to continue. And so one commentator, Anthony Thistleton, he says this. This is good. He says, this idea of tongues ceasing, he says this must surely call into question the notion that tongues are either a language of heaven or patterned after an exalted way of intimacy with God. If this were so, why would they cease at the eschaton? The exact opposite would be true. Then they would flourish at that point if these tongues were actually an angelic or a heavenly language. When the new creation is fully ushered in, these things will cease when the perfect comes, when Jesus consummates his kingdom at the end of the age. And we'll get to this more in detail soon. But certainly, friends, when we think about what that existence will be, that glorified existence, we certainly believe that our intimacy with God will increase, right? It's not going to decrease from now. And so if tongues were some angelic language that produced or evidenced intimacy with God, then there's no way, it would, if it was in fact an angelic or heavenly language, there's no way they would cease. But Paul's here is saying that they cease. Whatever tongues actually are, there is no debate. They are not forever. The gift that the Corinthian church thought was the greatest thing, Paul let them know that it will end. It's going to cease, and then he says that about knowledge. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Now, he's not simply talking about understanding or, or knowing God, knowing God's truth in general, but he's talking about this spiritual gift of knowledge that he's already mentioned back in 1 Corinthians 12, which seems like, at least, I don't want to be overly dogmatic here because there's not a lot said about it, but it seems like it is this revelatory gift to understand some things that are mysterious, uh, or sometimes called the word of wisdom, as it's often known. And we don't know precisely what it is because this, again, is the only place where it's mentioned here in 12 and 13. 
and it's 14. Um, the idea would be some sort of relevatory gift, like he already mentioned in 13.2, where there is a knowledge that's associated with understanding mysteries. And so the idea would be that not everyone had this knowledge. Not everyone could simply just you know, open up um, the Old Testament for them in, in this case, or the Septuagint, and then discover what it was that God was saying. This was something different. This was something that only a few people were gifted with. Not everyone would have this knowledge. Only, sup- only certain people were supernaturally given it. And so you needed to go to them to understand. So again, you could see how it would become something that would draw attention to specific individuals and cause people maybe to boast in something that is actually given to, to lift up the whole church and not just specific individuals. And so here there is a supernatural gift of prophecy, the supernatural gift of tongues, and the supernatural gift of knowledge. And Paul says that there's coming a day when it will all be done away with. God's going to bring them to a screeching halt, as it were. But love never ends, Christian. God is love. He is eternal. He is the God who is, who was, and who is to come. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Love never ends. For, for love to end, there would have to be some sort of change in God himself. And we know that that cannot be because he is God. He has no need to change. He's perfect. He's immutable, is how we would say it, uh, in the doctrine of immutability, immutability. But the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, the gift of this supernatural knowledge. These are all good things. They're amazing things, but they only served a purpose in time. There was a time when they didn't exist, and there was a time when they weren't needed, and then there was a time when they did exist, and they were needed, and they were important, but they're not permanent. The gift, the sign charismata especially, they have a a built-in obsolescence. They have an expiration date on them, in other words, uh, that God created them and gave them to the church with a specific purpose for a specific time, and that time will end. That's the apostle's point. And that's not to say that prophecies, tongues, and knowledge were somehow void of love, by the way. That's not what he's trying to say here, that that those things were just totally void of love and totally different than love. There's certainly love behind all these gifts that God would give them to the church as a testimony for a time, is is again, as a evidence or a testimony of his love, but they aren't needed forever. And they aren't so central that love can actually be neglected in the pursuit of them as well. That was the Corinthian church problem. And Christians then, what that means is this. You need to be careful to not make the the gifts that God gives the church the end all of your life. Pursuing the gifts is not how one grows in the Lord and is conformed to Christ. Some churches will teach that is the case. And we need to avoid such people, honestly, because what Paul is teaching us is that love is the most important thing. You want to grow in the Lord. Love your neighbors. Love the Lord. That's what the gifts are even about in entailing. So you understand that if gifts are by nature temporary and God has built in an obsolescence to them, then, then gifts just they can't be the ultimate goal of the Christian life. It can't be what you live for. There are people today, sadly, who have been deceived and they live for they, they live, they, they live for a new prophetic word that they're gonna hear. They they thrive off of that sort of thing. There are people today that strive to speak in tongues, that feel like they're not living a full Christian life because they don't speak in tongues even. And the apostles' clarion call here is that there's something that's more important. Don't miss it. 
pursuing these other things. There is love and major on love. And there's even coming a day, and perhaps that day has already come in some ways, when the gifts mentioned here will be rendered unnecessary. So the question is then, why? Why is that the case? Why are they not needed? And the apostle actually explains this so wonderfully in verses 9 and 10. This is why the gifts are temporary. It's because they belong to a time of imperfection. But the perfect is coming. So, all right, verse 9 reads, For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So here's Paul's rationale for saying so. The gifts are temporary. They serve a temporary function. And here it is right now. What we need to know about God, the information that we have is actually partial. But there is coming a day. And so, by the way, those gifts that are directly connected to the, to the in-partness of what we know, there's coming a day when the partial, the imperfect, if you will, will give way to what is coming, the perfect. So right now, for all of us in this room, there is a quality to our understanding and our knowledge of God and His Word that is partial. It's not complete. That humbles us, doesn't it? Here's one thing that's absolutely true about everyone in this room. We're all sinners. Does that affect your ability to know God and to understand His truth? It absolutely does. Your your sin impacts that ability. Here's another fact about everybody in this room, including myself. We are all finite, aren't we? God is the only infinite being. Another related truth, we're all limited. None of us have unlimited knowledge or insight or powers, right? And so, for example, then, whoever your favorite Bible teacher is in the whole wide world, guess what? They only know in part. Uh, here's maybe a surprise. Vodi Bakum doesn't know everything. He only knows in part. Paul Washer, whoever it is that we esteem for the gifts of understanding that God has given them, they only know in part. And why? Because that is the nature of the age that we live in. This is how God designed it. Listen, there there is a quality to our knowledge and of our understanding of God that is only partial. We know in part, we prophesy in part, and remember that doesn't mean necessarily that you're foretelling a future event. Pastor Nick went into that. Don't want to rehash it all. But it's not bad that it's this way. It's a good thing. It serves to humble us. It serves to humble us before our Lord, and we should want to be humble before Him. He's the one who deserves to have eyes on Him. He's the one who who deserves adoration and praise. We know in part, and what we know is what God has revealed in His Word. Now, of course, there is a lot here. There are 66 books by which God has inspired and given to the church for its edification, for knowing Him, for revealing His plan of redemption. And we could spend our whole lives on this side of eternity, locked in a room, mining this word for diamonds, and we would never discover all of them. Because it is so vast, it is so wonderful, it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is God's word. It's God-breathed. It's vast, but we are finite, we're limited, and we are impaired by sin. And so our knowledge isn't perfect, it's in part. That's what Paul is saying. And so what has God revealed in his word? Well, even as great as he is and as sufficient as his word is for us in this life, it's only enough for us to know in part. He's revealed the the tip 
of the tip of the iceberg, as it were. It's like we have like a teaser trailer for the world's longest movie in, in one sense. So, so track with me here. If the revelation of God is the tip of the tip of the iceberg, and then you have like, you know how an iceberg works? You see, you see it here, but below it is like this whole podium. The rest of the iceberg, the rest of this vast knowledge is all below the waterline. The iceberg goes down, it spreads out way beyond anything we could ever imagine. Then, and all we see is this, well, then you realize that we're only seeing in part, right? We're not seeing everything. We, there is more that we can know, but we don't yet know it. And the wisdom of God toward us in this plays out that he only gives to us, as it were, just the tip of the information that we can know about him and his plans. And now by the way, in revealing the tip of the tip, it's, it's true and accurate revelation, right? It's not like he reveals something false so as to throw us off the trail or something like that. That's not the way that it works. It's accurate knowledge that we are given from the Lord God. It's true knowledge, but it's just partial knowledge. There's no way for any of us to fully comprehend what God has revealed. And here's the reality. What God has revealed, He has revealed on a need-to-know basis. There are some things that we don't need to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the hidden things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord. There, there is stuff that God has not revealed about Himself. There is stuff not revealed in His Word. So here, now, in this life, it's partial. It's accurate. It's true. It's what you need to know now. But how much can we as sinful, finite, limited creatures know about the tip of the tip even? What we know, we know in part. That's what the apostle is saying even here about himself when he's writing this. We know in part. We prophesy in part. And that shouldn't discourage you, friends. That, that shouldn't be a discouraging thing. That shouldn't be something that just causes you to throw your hands up in the air and say, oh, well, what's the point of it all now? What that should do is overwhelm us all with a sense of the majesty of God. That look how much it is that we are able to see, but that's just the tip. It's just part. This isn't even everything that he could reveal to us. That should excite you to pursue knowing God more because there is so much more to know. The amazing thing is this, friends, is that knowing in part can still be knowing God intimately. Knowing in part can still be knowing God truly. Knowing God genuinely as He is within the scope of what He has revealed. And so right now we understand in part. But there comes a day, the text is telling us that on that day, we will absolutely be blown away. You know, I think maybe it might be a corollary to that experience that those soldiers had in the Garden of Gethsemane when they approached Jesus. And they, upon seeing him, they fell backwards as dead. But of course, we are, those who are united to Christ's faith, we would fall forward to Christ's feet where he would gently you know, lift us up. But it was that, that knowledge that they didn't have and all of a sudden it just hit them and they, they, they dropped down to, to a knee. When that happens, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but it's going to happen when we see him face to face, is how he says it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And there's absolutely no way to even anticipate fully and completely what that is going to be like. Again, we only know in part now. We're given clues in God's word. It's going to be glorious and wonderful. It's the perfect fulfillment of prophecy. It's a, it's a goal of redemptive history, and it's certain. But when the perfect comes the partial will pass away. It's a fact. 
And so Paul says, we know in part, we have a partial knowledge of God now, and plus we also prophesy in part. That's how it existed there at that, at that time of writing this letter. The quality of prophetic revelation is only partial. Now, by the way, does this undermine our confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture? I hope it doesn't. I hope that's not what you hear me saying. Does having knowledge and a prophetic revelation in part undermine what we believe about God? It doesn't. Not at all. Because what God does give his people is his word. This is what he's revealed. It's just the tip, but this is what he's revealed. And it's what they, it's what we need at any given point in redemptive history. We have the sufficient word of God at our fingertips, friends. It says 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 confirms that. And so for us, further, we have you know, the completed canon of Scripture. The 66 books are the sufficient word of God for us. Everything that we need for life and godliness, for reproof and correction, we have in the canon of Scripture. So to say that we only know in part and that we only prophesy in part does not do anything to undermine the sufficiency of the word. But what it does do in this, and this is necessary for us, is that it reminds us that our knowledge is fragmentary that it's imperfect on this side of heaven. And we shouldn't therefore boast in our knowledge, which is what Paul corrected the Corinthian church for earlier even. There, remember Paul's, he made it his goal to boast in Christ, to boast in the cross of Christ, not in his knowledge. And Paul had more knowledge than anybody else, right? He was, he, even in another letter, he talks about himself being caught up to the third heaven, but he doesn't even say it's himself. He talks about it in third person uh, because, again, he's not wanting to boast in his knowledge. His boast is in the Lord. And this understanding in this age about it being in part, about it being partial, serves to humble us. We shouldn't be like the Corinthian church and swelled up with pride, thinking that our feet barely touch the ground, that we know so much more about God than others. And this is especially, I think, probably a, an issue for those of us who are Reformed, who lean Reformed. Pride tends to be a, a, a matter of contention for us because we do. We study the Lord. He's worth studying. And so and we, and we want to be firm and solid on our doctrines, and there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, our boast isn't our knowledge. Our boasts should be Christ. And the fact that we can actually only, even as much as we can, rightly and in, in a good way, that knowledge could only ever be partial. The f- that our limitedness is a blessing that keeps us grounded and aware of our de- dependency upon the firm foundation that is Christ Jesus and his word. And then Paul says this, this magnificent and challenging verse 10, when the perfect, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. We know in part and we prophesy in part. That's not too hard to understand. It humbles us. It reminds us to be meek. But when the perfect comes, well, now we're in some deeper waters, friends. This verse specifically has been one of great debate over the years. Many people, respectable and solid people, land on different places when it comes to defining what the perfect is here. I've kind of already shown my cards, but... I own a book, actually, it's called The Hard Sayings of the Bible, and it's compiled by a group of people, um, Walter Kaiser and F.F. Bruce may be familiar names out of this, this group of people that compiled it. And so I, I went to this book and preparing this sermon because I already knew 
you know, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 10 is difficult, where it speaks about this perfect. I wanted to see how they handled it. And sure enough, this verse is even mentioned in that book. <laughs> this verse is even avoided in a, in a book that is about dealing with the hard verses. So I don't know if that means to them that this is not a hard verse or if this, was just, this verse is too hard to even deal with it in this, in this book. It's one of the reasons that you buy that book even. So I was surprised to see this. So then, well, what is the perfect? Don't you wish the apostle would have just been a little bit more specific here? He almost says it as if he simply expects us to know what it is. But there are no footnotes here, of course. And so in other words, in other verses, in other books, uh, he's used the word perfect to mean to refer to people, as like in Philippians 3.12. He's used the term in attaining to a level of maturity, as in Romans 12. But here, those ideas don't fit. Basically, there are three ways that people have outlined this passage as to what it could mean over time. And I think two of them are true and one of them are not true, and one of them is true. So I won't leave you guessing which one I think is correct. You can think differently than me on this. That's totally fine. That would be okay. We can discuss it. That's part of knowing in part now, I would think. But faithful and true brothers and sisters have come to different conclusions here. So one of the view on this, so what is the perfect? It has been explained as being the completed canon of Scripture, that the perfect is the full Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that when that comes, the gifts will go away. The canon, the, the books of the Bible, in other words, they were completed in the first century, and they were recognized by the church in the early part of the fourth century because of rampant false teaching going on at the time. And so that would put the perfect then, if that's what it is, as coming a long, long time ago. By the way, you know, over um, you know, 1,900-ish years ago, this view is usually connected with a very, very strong cessationist view of the gifts, all right? So like think John MacArthur, for example. And by, you know, by the way, I would agree with John MacArthur when it comes to cessationism. You might remember from the start of 1 Corinthians 12 when I attempted to make a case for cessationism. At that point, cessationism being the belief that the signed gifts were for a specific time period and that time period has ended a specific time period within this present evil age that was localized in what we would call the apostolic era. And there is, there's a fluidity, a tension in this time between Jesus' first and second coming in which these things may or, or, or may not be even super clear. And so then, in a way, we would even say, well, not all prophecy has ceased. I mean, again, Pastor Nick recently talked about this. The church is still to have a prophetic voice, and we're still waiting for Christ to come again, are we not? But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we should think new prophecy is being given. All the prophecy that we need has been given to us is here in God's Word, and we, and we have it applied to us now in the preaching of the Word, and we're still awaiting for some things to happen. Well, despite that, despite the reality that I could affirm and I would affirm cessationism, I don't think that the perfect here in verse 10 refers to all the books of the Bible being compiled. And the apostle, to, for him to make the perfect, the compilation of the canon, seems out of place. It seems unlikely to me. It seems beyond what Paul would know because Paul is not the only author of Scripture. He was only given you know, specific revelation and understanding for the books that he wrote to us. And there was other authors of Scripture as well. So it doesn't seem to me it's unlikely that that would be the case. The other idea or another idea of what the perfect is and when the perfect comes is it's speaking of the maturity of the church. And so there's an appeal to verse 11 here where it says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish things. 
childish ways. And so the idea was based especially, or this, this version of, of identifying the perfect as the maturation of the church is especially carried out like, through Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. There, what that talks about is how the church would, in a sense, mature and outgrow these gifts. When, when the church, through the use of the gifts, would, would grow to uh, mature manhood, as it's, Paul says in Ephesians 4.13. I think that's possible, but I'm not convinced that that's the clearest understanding of the text either. Meaning then, the third option is what I think is correct, and that would mean that the perfect is the state that is brought in about with, with the return of Jesus Christ. It's the consummation of the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom was inaugurated at Christ's first coming. The new heavens and the new earth exist in this already not yet tension. Things are not yet perfect, but that process has begun, and when Jesus comes again, it will be finally set in place. The eschaton, the the consummation of the ages, is in view here. And when you look at this passage, to me, the third view, that it's the state of the eschaton being brought about by the return of Jesus, that's really the only plausible or or that's the best view when you stop and think about what verse 12 says. Because look at verse 12 really briefly. We're not going to skip those verse 11, but verse 12 says, "But But then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. So think about it. Does the completion of the canon, does the completion of the, the New Testament added upon or continued out of the Old Testament books, does, or does the maturity of the church give us face-to-face knowledge of God? It doesn't. Who here has arrived? Who here has perfect knowledge? I don't see any hands flying up in the air. None of us, right? So what gives us this face-to-face knowledge? Well, it's when there is no sin to hamper or disqualify that knowledge. And guess when that happens? It's it's when you get to glory individually. But think of the apostle's point here. It's when the perfect comes. In other words, it happens at the eschaton. It happens when Jesus returns. So I think I'm persuaded that the reasonable view here is that when the perfect comes, everything will be made complete. Everything that is associated with this present evil age... Even these imperfect gifts will pass away. They'll be done away with. Their corresponding imperfect understanding will give way to that which is perfect. Someone said it like this. I can't remember who, but they liken it to this. For the gifts mentioned here, once the perfect comes, they would be like lighting a torch in the full noonday sun. You don't need a torch in the full noonday sun. You might think of it like this as if we're in Antioch, and you're in an empty field, there's no trees around, it's August, it's 1 p.m., and the sun is in the sky in such a way that even you're not casting a shadow yourself. Well, would you need a flashlight to look for something at that time? You wouldn't, right? Because that's, and that's kind of a way of picturing what this perfect is, and it makes these other things unnecessary at that time. To have the gift of knowledge once the perfect comes, it would be like trying to describe a person or a place from a picture while everyone is actually looking at that person you know, with their own eyes. Now, even though I attempted to make a case for cessationism a few months back, you might remember that I didn't bring up this verse in doing that. I didn't think that was the right thing to do. This passage, I don't think, I don't think it makes a case for cessationism or continuationism. Either way, I, don't, I think that's reading into it. I'm, this passage doesn't help you. That's not Paul's concern here. 
people aren't coming to the apostle and asking him, when will these gifts cease? They're not, in their mind, there's no ceasing of these gifts at all. They're, they're abusing these gifts. He may have an answer. He may have had an answer for when the gifts will cease, a specific answer, uh, how they exist in this period where there's this already and not yet tension. And when it comes to the, the, the blessing that we have in Christ now and how it will be fuller, greater uh, later on, we already have it, but it's not yet full. It's not yet complete. And his point here, though, is to not give us a full doctrine on the use of the gifts in this age. But what he's doing is he's wanting to correct the abuse of the gifts. And so we shouldn't make this say more than it's intending to. And then the Apostle Paul gives two illustrations. And the purpose of both of these illustrations is the exact same thing. It's to demonstrate the difference between the two ages, between the present and its imperfection, and then the future and its perfection. So verse 11, this is a verse that can be abused as a proof text uh, to just suck away any sort of childlike fun out of a, that a person may enjoy. But that's not the point of the text. So Paul says in verse 11, When I was a child... I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Childhood here wasn't just specifically the church in its early infancy. It's not just talking about like the church in the apostolic era. Its childhood is the way that the apostle is describing this, this whole age of imperfection. In other words, from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus, there is a childlike, a childlikeness to the church. Why? Why is that the case? Because this is the age of the partial. That's the correspondence to the illustration. So when he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, that's natural. That's not a bad thing. He's not, he's not condemning children for being children at this point. It would be a strange thing. It would be an out-of-place thing if a four- or five-year-old came up to you and started to speak to you as if he or she was an adult. The typical four- or five-year-old has an average vocabulary of around 1,000 words. Uh, that could be more or less dependent upon the specific kid, of course. In comparison, a high school-age student has on average a 50,000-word vocabulary. It's natural. It's not a bad thing. I mean, I wouldn't be upset if Maisie didn't understand the word cessationism, even though we've talked about it a few times over these past you know, few months, and she's been in church here listening to that. A, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, doesn't typically know that word. They don't readily use it, but that's okay because they are a child. As you grow, you get more vocabulary, or, or at least most people do. That's why sometimes you'll hear people say that the use of profanity is a sign of unlearnedness, because it's like you're just inserting profanity in place of actual words, like as, as a comma. Uh, it's childlike, really. It's a sign, it's a lack of maturity, fake maturity. So limited vocabulary, that's normal for a child. What about then, um, he, what he goes on to say, when I was a child, I thought as a child, and I reasoned like a child. Well, it's, it's really actually often very entertaining to watch children think and reason, isn't it? If you have kids, I'm sure you understand that. You could take little Maisie, for example. She often has Anna and I very worried about what she's going to tell someone because she's, she's so creative and she's very loquacious for a, a four-year-old. She's actually um, she's like she's going to be five this upcoming week. And for the last week or so, she has woken up and the very first thing she says when she comes out of her room and, or, or asserted in some way is, am I five today? Am I, am I five tomorrow or am I five tomorrow, like how she likes to say it? Or even am I going to be five yesterday? That's something that she has said. And so we have in our calendar on the kitchen, really big on the 16th, 
MJ is five. And so that is, so we could say, Maisie, go look at the calendar. And that would work if she understood how a calendar <laughs> worked, right? So it, it's just, it, it doesn't help. And we've been caught in this very cute cycle of, is it my birthday for this past week and a half? Now, if this was the end of March or early April and I come into the office and Nick is doing this sort of thing, it would be really weird. <laughs> I'm like, Nick, you know your birthday is not till April 11th. You don't, we, don't have, we wouldn't expect him to act like that. But Maisie, she's a child. When you're a child, you think like a child, you reason like a child. I have a nine-year-old and 11-year-old boy. If they acted like that, I'm like, what's, what's your problem, boy? Like, they know better already by that point. It's appropriate for their age. And so Paul's point is this, I think. In this present evil age, we are encumbered by these incredible limitations. But it's just part of the world that we live in. It's just, it's just part of how it exists right now. But it's not forever. There's coming a time when the perfect will come, and that will be done away with. And as marvelous as God's word is, the fact is that this present age, we lack a completeness or a wholeness in our knowing. It's just part of the age. It's how we know God. You know, what's interesting is that no matter where you are in this room this morning in the faith, uh, in your process of sanctification, we'll talk about this more this evening as well, when, you come, when it comes right down to it, you're still a child in some way. We all are, myself included, because this is the age that we live in, in, in this period. No matter how eloquent your prayers, you still speak like a child. No matter how many Puritans you've read, no matter how much of Calvin you've read, you still reason like a child. This is the age of childhood for the church. Then when he says, I became a man, I did away with the things of a child. Uh, by the way, did away is the same word for prophecy and knowledge. It will be done away with when full maturity demands that we abandon the childish ways of childhood right. And so the gifts are part of this childhood of the church. They're marked by the limitations of childhood. But when the perfect comes, when the fullness of our maturity in Christ comes, there will no longer be a need for the gifts. They are for the church for a time. But that time is not forever. It ends. And then Paul gives a second illustration. He says in verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly. The word dimly here is the word from which we get the English word enigma. And in Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word is used in the prophets and also in the Proverbs to describe that like, which isn't clearly known. Now, Paul's not trying to say that our knowledge here is like a riddle or something like that. What he is saying, though, is that our understanding in this age is, is dimmed. It's not clear. But dimly actually isn't even the best word here. I'm not 100% sure why the ESV used the word. I guess it's better than the King James Version translation. There it says that we see darkly through a dark glass. That, that isn't all much better. And plus, we also have to deal with the reality that we have mirrors today, but that's not the type of mirror that the Apostle Paul would be thinking of. They didn't have the same kind of mirror that we have. Uh, they had these bronze mirrors that they actually weren't horrible. They were actually pretty good. The Corinthians were known for having good mirrors. But even with mirrors, you're not seeing perfectly. You're seeing, you're not seeing completely. You're looking at it. You're looking at this image, whatever it is, indirectly. You're looking at a reflection of the image. You're not looking directly at the image. You're looking at the image as it's being mediated as it's being put forth by the mirror. And so the contrast is with indirect looking into a mirror compared to looking at somebody how? Face to face is what the apostle says. That's the point of the contrast here. And so our experience of God and understanding of his truth is just like us looking in a mirror today. It's partial now. As good as it 
is or as good as it can be, it's just partial. And let's maybe change the imagery a little bit because we have something the Apostle Paul didn't have. We have photographs in my office. I have a lot of pictures. I have pictures of my wife, of my children, even a couple of pictures of my dogs have made their way into there. But I am never satisfied to not go home because I have those pictures there. The, the pictures aren't the reality. The pictures aren't seeing them face to face. The pictures are mediating this image of them. They give me an accurate representation, but it's not the same. And so when Paul says this, he's saying that our knowledge at this point is not complete. It's a true knowledge, but it's indirect. It's mediated. It's not immediate. It's lacking an intimacy, as it were. So when I say the word immediate, you know what I mean? I think it it means all of a sudden. It means something happens suddenly. It's, it's immediate. When I, when I compare that to mediate, mediate in this context means that we are seeing it through mediation. We're looking at it not immediately. It's coming at us through another way. But Paul's point is that when the perfect comes, that'll be done away with. And we'll see God unmediated. We'll see him face to face. Our knowledge of God will be immediate. Without the mediation of these gifts that were needed in this time, the prophecy, the knowledge, the tongues, they were good, important, and necessary for the time. They won't always be needed because we will be face to face when the perfect comes. Right now we know God immediately. We know him through the way he reveals himself through his word, through nature. We know how God has revealed himself through these ways, and we can know God and we can know him accurately, but there is coming a day when we will see him differently. And for those of us in the church, we, re we love this. We rejoice about how we're going to see God more fully in a greater capacity. Calvin, in his commentary, says this, he says, therefore, we must understand it in this way, that the knowledge of God, which we now derive from his word, is undoubtedly reliable and true, and there is nothing muddled or unintelligibly dark about it. But when it is called obscure or dim, the SV, it is in a relative way, because it falls a long way short of that clear revelation to which we look forward when we shall see face to face. Then he says a little later, he says there's an open, naked revelation of God in the Word, enough to meet our needs, and there is still, there's nothing unrecognizable about it. That is, there's nothing that is going beyond our ability to lay hold of, even as unbelievers, in such a way to keep us in a state of uncertainty. Of course, you know, there's a problem of us as unbelievers, as people who are still in their sin, not desiring to know uh, what God is like. But Calvin goes on to say, how small is our share of the vision toward which we reach out. Therefore, it is described only as obscured in comparison with the other. Even as much that we know of God through him giving us this book, through what he has shown us in nature even, it doesn't compare to what we will know of him when he ushers in the eternal age. When we see him face to face, unmediated, seeing him as he is, but now we see it as in a mirror, an enigma, obscurely, if you will. And then he says, but now I know in part. And so again, knowledge of God, it's partial, it's indirect, through a bronze mirror, as it were, as a, as a child. But then he says, I shall know just as I have been known. When is the, but then I shall know. When does that happen? It's when the perfect comes. And so here is this. Here is this wonderful sense, and there's this wonderful sense in which we will know fully when we will know as we've been known 
we read, when Paul says that, that does not mean that you'll have complete, exhaustive knowledge of the infinite God. That's not what he's meaning to say. No one will ever have that. We are creatures. He's the creator. We'll never fully comprehend God. So what's Paul's point? Paul's point is actually quite simple. And it's, it's that there's coming a day when we are going to know him in the same way that we have been fully known. That is face to face. God knows us immediately. There's nothing hidden from God, from us. That would cause, I think it was, a, it might have been Nietzsche, I'm forgetting, you know, the atheist philosopher who terrified, was terrified of God because God sees everything, which is an appropriate response for an atheist, actually. But God knows us as we really are. God knows us face to face. We still don't know God that way, but there's coming a day in which we will know God the way that he knows us. And that should absolutely boggle our minds immediate, full, face-to-face. -face. By the way, Paul's not making up this language. Eight different times in the Old Testament, we see this language being engaged with, with God face-to-face -face or mouth-to-mouth or -mouth in one place. Remember, this is the goal of God in our redemption, in Christ Jesus, as he executes the office of prophet, priest, and king, so that, that we will be his people and know him, know the God who created us intimately. Our chief end, as the Catechism puts it, is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. And God has been working toward that in this age. He has revealed Himself to us. We, there is, again, there is much truth that we can know about God. There's many good things and right things that we can know, things that are necessary for us and our joy in this life. But even that, it's in part. It's partial to what we'll know when the perfect comes. It, what we know now will give birth to a greater understanding. The whole creation is groaning now, awaiting this day in Romans 8, uh, we read. And in that day, friends, we'll have an understanding that is just saturated with love. And friends, I'll tell you, even you know, this morning, every Lord's Day, every first day of the week that we set aside, that God has set aside, and we also, in agreement with Him, set aside to come and gather and worship is a time when we could devote ourselves to worship God with other people who have been changed by God. It is a, a foretaste of that glorious existence that we'll have when the perfect comes. There is love among us now even. Uh, part of the reason we're supposed to not forsake assembling together is so that we will not at that point then stop building um, each other up in love because that's the main part of coming together as we worship God. There's love among us now. There's also gifts which we, need, which we need now, but when the perfect comes, we won't need them. Now, as we gather, uh, this gathering that we have is still plagued by our natures with struggle against the curse we inherited from Adam, but it's not forever, friends. God has redeemed us and so that we know that one day we will be able to worship him unencumbered by sin. He sent his son into the world to be born of a virgin, to live a holy life, never once sinning. He, he was fully obedient to the law of God. He was, he was tempted and tried just as we have been tempted and tried, yet he never gave in to that sin. And he, was, he resisted uh, the devil in temptation, whereas Adam gave in to the devil when he was tempted. And he went to the cross uh, not because he sinned himself, not because he did anything wrong. He was treated like the worst of all sinners. But he went to the cross there to pay for the sins of everyone who was chosen in him before the foundation of the world. 
to pay for every sin that you and I have ever done or ever will do. Not because Jesus himself needed to go there. He was sinless. He was without sin. But he went there to take upon himself as a substitute the punishment that we deserve. And so that one day when the perfect comes, when he comes again, because after he died, he took upon himself a, a real death, but he didn't stay dead because he wasn't a sinner. He rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he ascended to heaven where he lives to make intercession for us, but he's promised that he's going to come again. And when he comes again, because of this work that he has done for us on the cross, when he comes again, it's a time of joy for us. It's a time of celebration for us. We don't fear that day. We, we look forward to that day in anticipation because of the good work that he has already started in us. But it is a day, of course, that some should fear. And that if you're not trusting Christ, if you're depending upon your own merits, if you are depending upon your own good works to come before the Lord, when the perfect comes, that will be a terrifying thing for you. Because the only way that we could stand before God is because of who Christ is, because Christ clothes us with his righteousness. So friends, I would compel you to to look to Christ, because that is what Paul is wanting to do here. The Corinthian church was boasting in themselves. They were saying, look at me, look at the tongues I speak in, look at the prophecy that I know. That's not the point. What you need is love. What you need is to have been transformed by the love of God. Paul's point to this section is that during this age, what we know is partial. Nothing is complete. The gifts he's given us, the knowledge that we have, our experience of God, all of that, it's in part. But there's coming a day when the perfect will come. And when he, when the perfect comes, love will still be there. And we will love as we've never loved before. And we will experience what it is to be loved in a way that we've never even known before. You're a child of God if you have faith in Christ this morning. And you have so much to look forward to in that day. And one of the great connecting lines between this age and that age that is to come is love. Already it's great. Already it's wonderful. But it's not yet what it will be. It will be even better. It's, it's even love that prepares us now for the age to come. It's not your gift, whatever it is that the Lord has gifted you with, to build up the saints. It's love that is, is that. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not rolling on the floor. Not that we do that here. It's not great preaching. It's love. That's what prepares us for that coming day. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great way in which you loved us and for how much of it is that you have revealed to us of yourself. We could stand up here and discuss back and forth the things that we know that are true of you. Countless systematic theologies have been written, countless books, so many words have been spilled that discuss your majesty, your glory. And many of them are right and true. Yet we know that what we know now is, is still under, only understanding in part. And when you come again to consummate your kingdom, we will know in an even greater capacity. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us to have our eyes set upon your return, that we would look forward to it with anticipation, and that we would live now in such a way that glorifies you and that properly gives you uh, the exaltation that you deserve. Prevent us, Lord, from ever boasting in ourselves. Prevent us from ever wanting attention. Prevent us from ever wanting glory, God. All for Christ's glory's sake, we ask that you would do that, and we pray it all in his name. Amen.